edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, consider tossing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or, you know, leave us a, a review on iTunes if you can. Also, a shout out to always already absent Sam, Young, Don Sutherland, and Burnout Luke for the iTunes reviews. I think we asked some of our listeners to say, explain the lose to me right now, right? Which is a, which is a fun meme. And uh, <laughs> we appreciate the reviews, but today we are excited to announce that we have joining with us Professor Eugene W. Holland, who is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University, <laughs> whose books include Bo Laren's Kitzel Analysis, The Sociopoetics Modernism, Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, Introduction to Schizoanalysis, and Nomad Citizenship. What is it? It's Free Market Communism and the Slow Motion General Strike. My bad. As well as A Reader's Guide to a Thousand Plateaus. I think I got all your, your books in there, right? Eugene? Eugene, welcome uh, to the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And a forthcoming book, which we will hear about. <laughs> yes. That was um, great, Taylor. Taylor with the Ohio State. That was with great. the yes. Ohio. I made That's sure. Right. <laughs> I made sure that I said the Ohio State. <laughs> but uh, uh, that was good, Eugene. I always like to start with kind of not really a softball question, but this is just a fun question for I know for me and I think for the audience, and it's something that I'm deeply interested in, which is kind of your origin story. Can you tell us just a little bit about you know when you started thinking that hey. I want to do literature. I want to do philosophy. This is something that like grabbed you. And, and I mean like the three stages, I guess, because I want to know about your interest in literature, specifically French literature. I want to know about your interest in philosophy. And then specifically, if you can, when Deleuze and Guattari became important for you. Sure. I um, started out in college as an, a psychology major and then an economics major. And I quickly found myself up against the limits of those disciplines. Mm. And I said, I'm going to just do what I'm interested in. I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to do after college. This was back in the early 70s. And so mm -hmm. the feeling was that I didn't have to devote my undergraduate education to vocational training of any kind. So what I had enjoyed doing was taking philosophy courses and taking literature courses, mostly mm -hmm. French literature. As it happens in elementary school, I started st uh, studying French in third grade and, and really fell in love with the language. So I'm not sure I took any other literature courses in college except for French literature. So I said, okay, I'll double major. And um, I did mostly philosophy of language and phenomenology when I was doing the, the philosophy undergraduate degree. And then French literature was a uh, you know, standard thing. But what was maybe distinctive about it was this was the moment when Derrida was first being imported into this mm -hmm. country. 
Mm-hmm. And it happened at Yale, where, where I was doing my undergraduate work. And so ah. I actually took a graduate seminar on the grammatology. Yeah. And uh, actually, the the seminar was on something broader than that. I can't remember what it was, but I foolishly either volunteered or was assigned to do a precy of grammatology for this seminar. So that got me into something which you might consider to be kind of a bridge between literature and philosophy. Mm-hmm since it was mostly French departments that were interested in Derrida to begin with. So that was my, that was, uh, and I did a, I did a, a thesis, uh, a joint thesis for French and philosophy that st- I think started with Plato and ended up with Mallarmé or something. I wow. have to go back and look at it. But, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was of a scope that when I got to graduate school and Fred Jamison assigned the anti-Oedipus for one of the seminars, I was fascinated. I mean, he had yeah. his own reasons for being interested. He then published an essay on on the ways one could turn the anti-Oedipus into a hermeneutics. Okay? Mm. I wasn't ready to do that. I was <laughs> barely barely keeping afloat. So we started a, a graduate student reading group, and we read the anti-Oedipus systematically, if that's mm-hmm. possible, for months on end. And um, one of the things that I think helped me get through it, in addition to the graduate student reading group was I was working with Herbert Marcuse in philosophy at the time as well. Wow. I had to defend schizoanalysis to the author of Reason and Revolution. So I'm not sure I succeeded, but at least it was a (laughs) challenge that kept me on my toes and and got me into the the arguments of the book favoring Marx, frankly. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, Marcuse was also very thoroughly familiar with Freud. He actually appreciated what they were doing vis-a-vis Freud. He was much less sure about what they were doing vis-a-vis Marx via Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. So that was <laughs> that was the introduction to the book for me. And uh, I wrote one of my one of my three qualifying exam essays on schizoanalysis. And so that was my sort of my launching pad. And the dissertation ended up being a very small scale look at Baudelaire as an example of what happens when a society becomes market-oriented or, or market-based, let's say. Okay, so there's a lot to react to there. <laughs> I specifically, the I didn't know you you had studied under and had even talked to Marcuse about anti-Oedipus. Did you ever like, hey, you know, they talk about you in, in this book? <laughs> oh, Did yes. That- <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, the Reich, the Marcuse, yes, that came up, sir. I mean, that was one of my, my uh, life rafts, <laughs> <laughs> trying to negotiate this conversation with uh, with him. They speak highly of Marcuse. They're they're a bit sharper with respect to Reich. So I was I thought I was on on uh, on safe ground there. I mean that is true, and it's on the one hand Reich is kind of gives them this inspiration that maybe something's wrong with the concept of ideology that doesn't really fit the problems like they are trying to tackle, and so he he puts forward that question that they repeat throughout the book like mm-hmm. a refrain, but then. Obviously, and you point this out in in the introduction to schizoanalysis, the the reasons for why, you know, Reich is kind of trying to separate the social from the psychological, Mm -hmm. which would be more of the, which would be irrational and subjectivist and, and, you know, and he's making these divisions that they can't really follow him on. And then let's not even talk about where Reich kind of ends up. I mean, admirably, I, I like the kind of mad scientist going out and trying to locate the organs, but, uh, and it reminds me a little bit of Guattari, you know, in a certain way, the mad scientist, but they, you know, uh, I could see why they would be a little bit sharper with, with Reich. And it, and now it also makes sense why you incorporate this notion of, 
of surplus repression from Marcuse because you would have discussed that with him. Yes. Yeah. And I guess I'll just add to my little biography that just one note, which is that when I got through my dissertation, it was too unwieldy to become a book. So it became two books. So the Baudelaire part was about, was my Baudelaire book. And then the, the introduction to schizoanalysis was the other half of the dissertation. Oh, but what I found particularly useful in the, in schizoanalysis was its appropriation of linguistics. Mm-hmm. And so it enabled me to get into Baudelaire's poetry in a way I felt very deep uh, because okay. of the tools that I was able to decoding, recoding that idea and 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 then meshed with him, Schleven Jakobsen, it made me able to look at the poems in a very close way, which I look back at now and say, what was I thinking? I mean, but that was that was the order of the day back then. One did close readings. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Uh, so I sort of I paid my dues that way. I just had a quick, I guess, pragmatic question because Taylor and I have been working through Anti-Oedipus and we like to do maybe a couple of different series concurrently so things remain fresh. And mm-hmm. do you feel like there's too much overlap between Anti-Oedipus and what is it, Eros and Civilization in terms of, do you think there's something that could be that would be rich about going back and, and looking at that book because I feel just for me personally, I think the field of libidinal economics, which I think it's part of, is yeah. that's what really excites me is this mm-hmm. kind of meshing of political economy and psychoanalysis. I think I just find that endlessly fascinating. Well, I do think there's a lot in Eris and Civilization in this last manuscript on perversions of the market. I so, sort of select out what I think are the most. Mm-hmm currently viable concepts from that and so yeah i think it's i think it's still very very valuable and i think there is i think there's it's no accident that they're they're sharper with reich than they are with marcuse in the anti-oedipus because they're they're extending i think from his analyses in many ways right. but you know as you said about not making a sharp distinction not accepting Deleuze and Guattari not accepting a sharp distinction in reich between the rational and the irrational i think Deleuze and Guattari would pause in the idea that you could distinguish repression from surplus repression. Mm-hmm. Not that Marcuse is insisting that there is a sharp line there, but the terminology lends itself to thinking in an older way that there is a certain number of hours that are work and there's a certain number of hours of the day that are surplus work, and that is no longer consonant with their with their view of the Marxian economics. This maybe sheds a little bit of light on, and I'm anticipating on something that, that stood out to me very much, which was the fact that in your introduction to schizoanalysis, your, as you said, the second part of your dissertation, right. one of the things that I really appreciated, because I do think it doesn't get looked at enough, doesn't get even, sometimes it just goes off the radar, which is the notion of anti-production. Yeah. And you spend a lot of time very patiently and very, and connecting it in ways that I hadn't thought of and making it much clearer than I think even Deleuze and Guattari do, because they don't really define it. Right. They, they mobilize it. Right. This notion of anti-production does seem to be perhaps in, would it be in dialogue with this notion of surplus repression that you're saying doesn't necessarily work for them? All that doesn't work for them is the notion that there's a sharp boundary between repression and surplus repression. They are, certainly would agree that there's a surplus repression. Gotcha. And it does, yeah. it does link up with anti-production via... And this is not in Marcuse, but via the notion of guilt. And this is something that Deleuze and Guattari get from Nietzsche directly, mm-hmm. genealogy of morals. I suggest somewhere they get it also via Bataille and yes. the notion of expenditure. That's more controversial. But um, in any case, what I think Marcuse doesn't 
see that they do is that debt is an is a vector for guilt. Mm-hmm. And in psychoanalysis, of course, guilt has an entirely different foundation. It's familial, it's interpersonal. I think Marcuse is still working in a Hegelian or a Hegelian Marxist framework where the surplus is generated from below, if you will. Yes. From so that the work is primary and the surplus is over and above. Well, Deleuze and Guattari have reversed that. They say, in effect, surplus value comes first. Surplus repletion comes first. And so there is a connection, but it's not one that Marcuse can see because he's more of an Hegelian. Right. And anti-production shifts, it's not a ahistorical term. This is part of the problem with psychoanalysis that you are able to come back to is that you know, you show anti-production changing from each territorial machine, well, from each machine, right? From the primitive territorial machine to the right. despotic machine to the, the capitalist machine, which eventually anti-production gets fused, you know, throughout production, yeah, right. which, which is how you make very clear that's kind of how the, the death instinct becomes, you know, subordinate to and infused everywhere. Infused everywhere. Yes, uh, right. I really appreciated that refrain in your work in making clear how anti-production too has this transistor has uh, not transistor but has takes on these different forms as we move through the ideal types of societal machines always historicize as jameson used to say and they're very good at it i mean part of it is ideal type as you say but it still Mm -hmm. makes for historical contrasts that are very useful and you know, since uh, since they fused Nietzsche onto Marx in this way, you have mm-hmm. David Graeber's maximum magnum opus on debt, mm-hmm. and you have Lazzarato's The Indebted Man. I mean, a lot of people have picked up on this and seen the importance of of assigning debt a role that is not there in Marx. Not that debt isn't there, but the role that it's playing is not there in Marx. I see. I see the 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 psychodynamics, as you might call it, correct? Yes, but also. The notion, and this is from this is what I think Bataille makes very clear, and they do cite Bataille, I think, once in the book, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, yes. that all societies are organized around the expenditure of a surplus, not around the production of anything. And I think that's what I think I say. Maybe I didn't. I said something like that. If Bataille hadn't existed, they would have had to invent him. Because, <laughs> you did say that, and I, I like yeah, that. I love that. Go ahead. He, because he, Bataille is the one who took Nietzsche's insight, which had been largely overlooked, mm-hmm. and made an anthropology out of it, in effect. And then, of course, you have Graeber coming out of that and so forth. So I think... Um, now, you bring up Graeber. I just want to, just really quickly, because I don't want to have to necessarily dwell on this, but he does have this footnote that's a little bit catty, a little bit dismissive, yeah. about it, where he cites in full that kind of, I, I think of it as a famous, you know, line where it's it's that Nietzsche's the thinker of how does it how put it? Uh, it's not Mouse. It's it's Nietzsche who's the thinker of not debt, but it's um, symbolic exchange or it's something like this, right? And and that that Mouse will will kind of start with with exchange or or will hesitate on which is primary, but Nietzsche right. and Bataille don't hesitate, right? That debt is is more primary, and you know Graeber's kind of like, well, how could that be? Because I think he's still thinking in terms of financial markets or in terms of of the autonomy that they will take on later. I'm not sure that he buys this notion of the mobile blocks of debt in the in the savage primitive territorial machine, right? And, I, and so he he dismisses it a little bit too yeah. offhand. 
I'll have to figure out a way to to call him out more systematically because I, I take issue with that footnote, Mr. Graber. Yeah. <laughs> well, the trouble is he's an anthropologist and has done a lot of work in this field, and neither Deleuze nor Guattari were anthropologists. And so they're borrowing stuff from the people they know, most yeah. in particular. And I think it gets them maybe as far as they need to go because they're dealing with ideal types after all. But yeah. it's probably not going to satisfy someone who's you know, immersed in the field of anthropology the way Graeber is right. or, or was. That's true. I remember uh, when I was when I was first reading Dead, I was like, hey, we should try to get Graeber on. And Coop's like, no, I don't think that's going to happen unless you can do a seance. It is. It well, is if you do a seance okay. with Graeber, you, you got to invite me because he's okay. amazing. He is amazing. Did you get to uh, chat with him about some of these things or no, just interact I've, with him? I, no, I, I interacted with him very casually one time when I was mm -hmm. in London. Mm -hmm. But um, but never systematically and never never really sat down and compared notes on these things. Yeah, you, you could have called him out for that footnote if you, I, if you I, really felt I like have, it. I might have pressed him, yes. I had a question about your first book on, on Baudelaire, and you pretty much answered all of it. But the little like side note, the corollary to my question was, did it disappoint you that they don't really uh, rely on on Baudelaire? They don't really cite him in Capitalism and Schizophrenia. I'm not sure if he shows up in minor literature or what is philosophy. No. I'm not sure if Deleuze ever no. cites him, but there's a sense in which, you know, they kind of stray from some of those authors that you might see someone like Walter Benjamin or Derrida cite like Meyer May and, and these other kind of more famous French poets. And they always had the flair for the American lit, but it, yes. it that didn't seem to deter you that they, they never said anything about it because it's not about who they talked about or not, right? It's about the application of schizoanalysis. Right. And in fact, in some ways it gave me an opening, right? They didn't talk about this guy. I could talk about. But the other thing is, I don't think Baudelaire was, Baudelaire had become too canonical for them, I think, oh, is one okay. way of looking at it. I mean, Artaud, the people they do cite, mm -hmm. they might cite Mallarmé, but Mallarmé is much more esoteric than Baudelaire and far less popular. Okay. So yeah. I, I could just write it off to that. He wasn't mad enough. There you go. I guess that's paradoxical, but if you compare him to Artaud, who obviously Deleuze had a, he'd already shown an interest in not only in logic of sense, obviously, but in Deleuze's repetition, uh, you know, that, and even given the the subtitle of capitalism and schizophrenia, it, it makes sense, right, that, that Artaud would be given pride of place. Yeah. yeah. I had a quick question about just going back to anti-production, and mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking about the realization of surplus like like it has to be realized in terms of i guess something an anti-oedipus right they use the example of what the army right yes Going, the army is this way to handle anti-production so is this i mean just to spell it out we kind of danced around it just a little bit but i think are we drawing like a one-to-one -one example correlation with the potlatch just to make that just to highlight that a little bit Yes. I mean, potlatch is the um, as a sort of the different the, form of kind of like the historicization that you discussed yes, earlier, right? Yes. It's kind of continuing. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But the thing is that the potlatch, even when it destroys things, is a celebration. Right. And, yes. and war is not. So what Bataille will say about this issue is we're going to expend. Mm -hmm. Let's expend joyfully. Right. Right. Not lethally. But also they mentioned not just the military, but they, they mentioned advertising as a way of soaking right. up surplus yep. for, for no purpose. And I think one of the interesting things that I don't maybe emphasize enough in this 
more recent manuscript on perversions of the market is that there's the difference between private expenditure and public expenditure. Mm -hmm. The potlatch mm -hmm. is a very public thing, but consumerism has been steered into a into the private. Well, it starts in the domestic sphere. It's still private, even if it's no longer domestic. And private consumption, which is invidious, to use Veblen's term, is a very different thing from collective anti-production or collective anti-expenditure. Ah, right. And the okay. only thing I can think of is July 4th fireworks. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a celebration. It's right. a huge waste. Mm -hmm. It's a celebration that people – now, of course, it's a patriotic celebration, so there, there are you know, some <laughs> sharp edges to it too. But nonetheless, it's different from private – consumerism and it's different from military expenditure mm -hmm. which is i think really the sort of the, the quintessential engine production because you just have to keep building more and more bombs right you even use that notion uh, in the production of bombs is this is this kind of perfect uh, example because you know yeah. you, you produce bombs you you blow you say like you use the bombs you blow them up and it, it recalls for more bombs but i was also thinking that it also calls to construct what you blow up, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. The reason I brought this question up is kind of what I what it reminded me a little bit of, I guess on the surplus side is, so you'll often hear pro-capitalist argumentation about, let's say we're going to, we're going to tax, we're going to take all of Elon, we're going to appropriate all of Elon Musk's wealth and pay out everyone a share of his wealth. Well, because his wealth is, it's tied up in the market, right? It's tied up in stock. So this virtual value, they even will acknowledge, oh, well, that's not real value because it hasn't been realized yet. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so they yeah. even will recognize this disambiguation between value and I don't know what that would be. Just to play off and then hand no, it go off ahead. to, I'm, to I'm Eugene, good, <laughs> this, this reminds me of your discussion. I'm not sure if it's in your, your recent manuscript, but I know you discuss it in Nomad Citizenship, which is their distinction between the rigid, the supple segmentarity, and then the the kind of quanta that can't necessarily be right. easily quantified. Do you want to kind of maybe speak a little bit to that? Or maybe maybe you can answer Coop originally and I'm I'm muddying the waters. What was Cooper's question? Well, I, I was so I was kind of pointing out what you often hear, and it go, goes back to surplus, is that and realization of surplus. So you'll hear if you know the refrain will be something like hey we need we should tax elon musk we could you know his worth 1 billion whatever 1 billion we chop yeah. that up we give everybody their share the pro capitalist people will recognize okay no this yeah just because he's has these assets which are primarily tied up in stock it's not until they realize that the value can be appropriated i or whatever the case may be yes. right yes so they Although even they even acknowledge this sort of disambiguation between you know what i mean there's some Liqu kind of a, liquid saying, assets like, and right mm -hmm. right the recognition that there is liquidation there's liquid assets and there's fixed assets mm -hmm. and i don't know what i don't know how when forbes evaluates yes. Elon musk's wealth i have no idea whether they look at that or how they how they mm -hmm. match up the two mm -hmm. um i think where this does um intersect with the with the comment that taylor was making is this notion that both beneath and above the market, there are quantum flows. Mm -hmm. Below the market is quantum flows of desire, some of which get captured for consumerism. Right. Above the market, there's a quantum flow of, of wealth, right. of virtual value, which is, is denominated by your stock share multiplied by the time, you know, the number of stocks on a given day, 
but which, if it's liquidated, becomes well, I see. Does it? It becomes virtual value waiting to be actualized. Right. The better go. example. The better example of this, though, is bank balances, because mm-hmm. there the quantum flow comes out of nowhere, literally right. out of nowhere. And this is now something that modern monetary theorists have identified as a crucial point to um, to counteract the idea that we have to be stingy because we're we're borrowing money and we have to pay it back and that stuff. I mean, there's a whole uh, a whole movement now opened up that I think um, plays on this notion of the quantum flow of wealth or riches or liquid whatever before it be, even be appears on anyone's ba- balance sheets. Right. The mutant flow, I think is what yes, they call it. That's right. That's right. They're quoting Schmidt, I think, when when they're this was that's at the end of chapter three, and they talk about this return to Marx is is returning to this to this monetary theory, which is what you're talking about. This kind of you're owing yourself money on one end of the ledger and and creating this kind of just mutant quantum flow of yes. of uh, this this where capital becomes way more abstract than it is on the other side with wages or even commodities. I like mutant flow better, actually, than <laughs> quantum flow. It makes sense to think of it both ways. And I think that mutant flow isn't even their term. I think they get it from Schmidt, uh, yeah. Bernard mm-hmm. Schmidt. Not the Carl Schmidt that you, you no. bring up a isn't lot. It Henry, Sh- Henry Schmidt? Isn't it Henry Schmidt? Or is it Bernard? Is it? it doesn't matter. I know the no, Schmidt you're talking about. They may get it from that. But the reason I like it is because it's not defined. It's totally undefined. Yes. Totally decoded. I know that Christian Kerslake has a wonderful yes. essay on it yep. that, that I've looked at, and um, and it is touching on this this very central part. But but anyway, you've brought up your you said it's called the perversion of the market. Is this this is the new work you're working on? Right. And I know that Cooper and I were very oh, yeah, thrilled this with this, and we have some questions about this. I do want to ask the basic question I had was, you know, you obviously uh, say you're going to look at works and you do a nice close reading, you know, maybe not as close as, as you, you were doing as a grad <laughs> student, but do the nice close readings of Saad and, and Masoch, and you propose conceptual terms of sadism or is it? Yeah. Sadism and masochism. Mm-hmm. Although you won't say sadist and masochist, you'll say Saadian and, and Masochian, but with capital letters to designate right. them as, these conceptual terms. And I was wondering if you were inspired by the way in which paranoia and schizophrenia get used in the end of Anti-Oedipus to designate these two poles in which the socius or investments can kind of fluctuate. Were right. you thinking kind of along these kind of lines? And you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, they they do. I mean, Deleuze and Quattri's reuse of those terms gave me license to retool these other terms. The inspiration came First of all, well, there are two sources. One is Deleuze's own book on Mazak. Mm-hmm. And the close reading you've uh, kindly attributed to me is, in fact, <laughs> his close reading. But he doesn't, he doesn't go where I go with it. Yes. He's, he's being a symptomatologist, not a diagnostician. And, do, you, um, do you want to distinguish between those two before you? Yes. What he I says, don't mean to interrupt you, but. No, that's quite all right. What he says uh, in the uh, early pages of the Mazoc book is that psychoanalysis and psychology in general has mistaken these two phenomena to be symmetrical counterparts, one of the other. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's bad symptomatology because the symptoms, if you look at the literature closely, which is what he does in that book, these are two completely different universes. And I think he even tells the joke about the masochist who goes up to the sadist and says, beat me. And the sadist says, no. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because his point is that these things are incompatible. Right. And so he's doing, he's saying, we have to look at the symptoms. And, the, and if we look at the symptoms as they are displayed in these literary works, we see that each of these is a universe, a syndrome of its own, and they don't match up. And that's but why never, Freud, the Freud yanking, yoking them together is, is yes. muddying the waters. Yes. Kraft Ebbing, Freud, from you know, almost everyone who does that are making a, a category mistake. These are two mm-hmm. separate things. So he's redrawing the boundaries of the symptoms and saying they're two different syndromes. But he doesn't say what this symptomatology is supposed to diagnose. I he see. says he says these these writers are anthropologists as well as psychologists. He gets mm-hmm. that far, but mm-hmm. clearly these are diagnostic terms. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he tends to read all of philosophy and I think arguably literature as being diagnostic in spirit. What you do is you're philosophers, you diagnose a problem by inventing concepts and so forth. So the, the symptomatology is there, it's very rich, and it's one of the jumping off places for my using them to diagnose mm-hmm. capitalist production and capitalist consumerism. The other source, just tangentially, is a, a passage from Marcuse where he says, it may appear that I'm using psychological terms, but in a mass-administered society, mm-hmm. psychological terms are sociological terms to start with. It's a much more elegant paragraph than I've been able to recap just now. But this is the other, you know, the other license to to do this. And I I must say again biographically that um, I was working with with Fred Jameson at the time as well as Marcuse. And Fred Jameson is never comfortable with psychology, as far as I can tell. He's always trying to, <laughs> yeah, he's trying to re tool or recode psychology, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I think. He said at one point, I can't remember if this is in print or he said this to me personally, he said, there's much more damning things to be said about capitalism than than calling it narcissistic or whatever the case may be. Right. Okay. I see. Yeah. So I happily had Marcuse's quote to lean on to get me through this, uh, through the, the dissertation process. I like this idea that, because you're right, I mean, Deleuze... He has this trope of thinking in terms of sentimentology. I know he attributes it especially to Nietzsche. Uh, yes, in and Proust. philosophy and Proust, yeah, yes. just yeah. as a. Uh, but what you're what you're saying reminds me a lot of what what Guattari says in uh, the Machinic Unconscious when he begins his section on Proust, was is that in search of lost time is a schizoanalytic monograph, and we can kind of use it to understand the, the unconscious. And so you're you're saying that sadism and masochism as conceptual entities can help to diagnose certain features that we see in society. It's not just about reading literature better. Absolutely right. It's connecting that machine, that book machine, with mm-hmm. other machines in the, in the social context. That's right. It's not about interpreting literature better. These are, right. these are diagnostic concepts whose objects are not psychology, not the author, right, right. but rather capitalist production relations, capitalist consumer relations. Did you have... Uh, yeah, Something to add. I, yeah, certainly. Um, so I thought just looking, I, I guess for one, it's I like that you emphasize consumption on this masochistic and the sort of masochistic way. Right. Because I think obviously like Baudrillard 
is good and that he brings up consumption as a big component of the more, I don't know, the, the postmodern capitalist economy or, or what have you. But I was thinking about how this actually works is, I don't know if you're familiar with the term phrase retail therapy, yes. where people, you know, it's kind of this expect, like you sort of are deriving this sort of quick and dirty jouissance from this sort of, it's almost like a, a needless expenditure, like on the individual level, but mm-hmm. on the social level, this process is what actually contributes to the expansion of capital. And Absolutely I'm guessing right. that is, that is kind of due to the Whenever the commodity is purchased, that's when the real is the realization of profit takes place. That's right. That's where it happens. And like that, it's kind of an imminent thing, correct? Whenever the purchase occurs, or am I? Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. That's where the that's the moment of realization. And without it, capitalism would have foundered decades or a century and a half ago. Right. And and you're right. Baudrillard was onto this. I can't remember the name of the political economy of science. That wasn't it. Anyway, some of his early work. Yeah. Yeah, the so consumer was definitely focused on this because France went through this this very rapidly after World War II. It was a very, very. I mean, in the United States, it was a matter of, I would say, mo- most of the 20th century. Mm. But of course, France was demolished during the First World War, and right. it took them decades to catch back up. But with the Marshall Plan after World War II, consumerism just went through the roof. And so mm. Rodinard and others, literary work that I cite from the 60s, called a history of the 60s, was definitely caught up in the same exhilaration, but also befuddlement about what, what consumerism was, was about. And you and cite that one story. I don't know if it's a novella or a novel, uh, like shows. Just yes, it's, it's a novel. It, and I thought that really ties into what Coop is discussing as retail therapy, this little story yes. about these. It's so interesting the way that it ends, right? Where they, it kind of tells the story about desire and satisfaction and, and just the, the kind of imminent failure yeah. of, of this, this drive to, you know, going from window shopping to actually being able to purchase the things. And, and right. then it just, it just kind of, Fades, you know, it kind of yeah. eludes your grasp, right? It falls flat. Yeah, the the term that I use that it's that's akin to retail therapy is one I got from Colin Campbell. It's imaginative hedonism, that's and he does too. an extraordinary. Uh, the book he wrote is called um, "The Romantic Ethic and the Spirit of Consumerism." So oh. he's playing off of Weber. Yes, he's, right. He, look at these strains of Protestantism and look how they feed into sentimentalism and then into the pleasure one gains from imagining that you can afford, I don't know, a yacht or uh, or some luxurious apartment, which is the way Perec's novel starts. So retail therapy and imaginative hedonism, I think, are very close close to one another. The satisfactions of, of shopping without even going so far as to use the product yet. You haven't gotten to the point of use value. You're not using the product yet. It's just imagining having it or actually buying it. And that's a satisfaction of its own, shopping for it and buying it, hmm. which is precisely the moment of realization. And whether you actually enjoy it or not is completely irrelevant to the capitalist. Right. right. Yeah. For me, as someone who has <laughs> gotten themselves into debt, into credit card debt, as a result of this kind of this, it's really like a masochism in the sense of like, I know that I don't have the money to pay for this now, but I'm still going to do it just to get this sort of feeling this good feeling or this, you know, satisfaction from this expenditure that I know is bad, right? There's something <laughs> that's the kind of masochistic thing that I saw within myself is like continuing to burrow yourself further in debt to right. sort of do this. And in so doing, that's obviously what the system sort of wants you to do. Yeah. 
is keep remember, reproducing or realizing yeah. that surplus profit. Right. What, what have right. you? Remember Bush? What Bush said about after nine eleven? Keep shopping, people. Yeah, yeah. Keep shopping. People got checks in the mail, and it's like, don't put that in the bank. Go spend it. Right. Yeah. I think of the ethics of it too. Right. The ethics of capitalism, at least you know, as ideological level, is you know, accumulate assets. Right. Because asset don't accumulate debts. Accumulate assets. Mm-hmm. So it's that that enjoyment of that you're receiving through this masochistic practice kind of flies a little bit in the face in a sense, but still gets funneled back into the circuit of production. Yeah. No, it appears to be just desserts, right? There's a, I think I quote a bumper sticker at the end of that manuscript, living well is the best revenge. And the idea is that, (laughs) is that you've accepted succumbing to whatever the boss at work, whatever degradation you have to put up with at work, you've agreed to to trade in that in order to choose your own commodity and lifestyle. Yeah. So it definitely is both an apparent escape or retribution, and mm-hmm. yet, as you say, it's it's feeding the accumulation of capital. It's realizing capital. I mean, it's so axiomatized. It's, kind. It's like an axiomatization, yes. right? Well, well it is, definitely. Yes, and- absolutely. It's rendering the the dead infinite, right? You gotta gotta put back into that. Uh, yeah, that that. See, see Eugene, you're it, reading your book has <laughs> like this is. I understand you kind of help fill in so many of these little puzzle pieces with Antietipus. That like, I've been very excited all week reading reading the intro to Schizoanalysis and the new piece you sent us. Just as a side note, this is all kind of new, so I'm having a lot yeah. of fun. Kind well, of like, I think yeah, that's good because I hadn't thought of of re re-internalizing it and to look at the masochism of someone who knows they can't afford this but can't mm-hmm. resist the temptation of the purchase anyway right i'll have to give that some thought because that's a slightly different constellation of masochism than, right. than what i was thinking because i was more thinking externally rather than than its re-internalization but that is definitely going on for those of those of us who are clear that um we're in debt over our heads. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've talked to Cooper about this and it's kind of, we both don't have kids. I have a wife, but my wife and I, and I know Cooper and I have talked about this where it's like, we're, we're kind of, we're not worried about bequeathing an estate. <laughs> yeah. I just meant to say, I, I'm not speaking for those who have children and that are thinking of their, the next generation that they would give an estate to, but just my own thought is since I don't have to worry about that as much, I think that's part of why not to worry about, about this taking on of debt. It's also a way of, as Cooper was kind of saying, like, it's kind of like disavowal, right? You, you know, very <laughs> yes. well. Yes. That's exactly what it is. You know, very well. So it is, yes. there is something. Cause I, cause I was kind of thinking when I was reading uh, your, when you were going through Venus and furs, I was kind of thinking about Freud, the, fetish right the disavowal of, yeah. of of the mother's castration and uh and then how it all ends with the with the other male figure coming in and ruining the contract and yeah and just and so now i want revenge and it does feed into a lot of your other discussions about the kind of tensions between say like the fatherland pole and the motherland pole which i know is is not Maybe not as well. You, you say it in different terms in your newest book, right? This kind of tension between, um, you know, the paternal the paternal comes back in and kind of has to say, like, all right, that's enough. That's enough of your enjoyment. You're not gonna, you know, this. You you don't you no longer have this access, and, right. and that turns that turns into what's the word? 
that turns into to not separate. Well, you, you do discuss it sometimes in terms of separation anxiety, right? And and then and then it becomes aggression. It does become aggression at the end of Venus and Furs, for example. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that that is a sort of points to the kinds of aggressions that then I show in uh, in American Psycho. Yes. And it's aggressive, or and in rollerball for that matter, it's aggressive in in in, in rollerball. It's aggression in production relations. Mm-hmm. In American Psycho, it's even aggression in consumerism because they're competing with everyone else right. yes. in the Wall Street firm and so forth. So, but um, I'd have to think more about how it relates to fatherland and motherland. I know that's that's more from nomad citizenship. But yeah, I, I think I think yeah. it does. I think it still has some of the resonances with your emphasis on on psychodynamics and because you don't merely stop with you know sadism masochism as conceptual poles you do go through these different forms of narcissism yes and including these different forms of of supremacism that that a lot of times you have this kind of motley cocktail which is very useful for understanding someone like Patrick Bateman from, from American Psycho. Right, right. But you know, now that you mention it, the, the fatherland, motherland, I think, I also talk in that book, in the Nomad Citizenship, about provisioning as part yes. of what the motherland does. <coughs> yes. And protecting is what the fatherland does. And so if you read that across the, the end of Visions and Furs, I guess you have the sense that this then has to be read in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. Are you going to cut back on, on welfare? Are you going to, uh, well, insist that you work to get welfare? I guess that was the Clinton turn. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I think, and the kind of of armoring that, that Taylor White talks about in terms of the Fry Corps soldiers, that I think is, is a characteristic of the fatherland ethos. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, protection, you know, even from the internal enemy. Versus provisioning, nurturing, and so forth, which is more of the motherland pole. So yeah, I think that that connect that connection will work. Yeah, and the fact that you bring up male fantasies is is very important. I know that I've Coop, I've talked to you about it a little bit, but it's it's a fascinating and a really uh, kind of horrifying two volumes. If you, the more you stick with it, the you know a little goes a long way. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> but anyway, I I know you have some other questions that you added. Yeah, too deep. Uh, I don't want to Taylor, only ask my questions. Real quick question for you would be: Have you ever read the text of American Psycho just out of curiosity? I the book, not the film. I no, I have not. But I've talked to my wife about it. She's <laughs> gotcha, read it. Gotcha, a few, okay, she's okay. a big fan of. She was talking about Alice, some of the differences between the movie. Yeah, the novel will go on for pages and pages about what everyone wears. So Patrick yes. Bateman, he goes through and describes. You know, Ralph Lauren suit, Valentino tie, glasses by Oliver People, etc. This is sort of hinted at in the movie, but in the book, it's it's like right. You get pages and pages of this yeah. crap. It yeah. gets yeah, very uh, it's very onerous to read. Through I picked that I picked that up from point. Eugene. It sounded like the the <laughs> lists were Homeric in length, right? Yes. The, just the lists and lists. I kind of got that feel that there was something epic about it. Yeah. You know. As someone who prefers a sort of minimalist approach in literature, this was just <laughs> utterly just. <laughs> yes, I kept stop. I kept kind of flipping forward to the kind of macabre parts to just sort of <laughs> experience that or whatever. But I wanted to sort of, I guess, ask this question relative to the masochist angle is because you do bring up the contract between the masochist and I guess the what would it be the, dom- the dominatrix, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yes, right. 
are you drawing this parallel between kind of the free market, the employment contract as well? Because it does, it is argued as these sort of are on egalitarian footing and there is a sort of, you're freely entering into this contract. Right. So whatever happens to the outcome disambiguated from this sort of ethics of the process of the, via the contract. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that reminds me that there is a, a thread of, of my research that didn't get into this manuscript, and I don't know if it's going to get into the book under revision either, but which is the history of contract law across the 19th century. And the most important thing is that workers now, by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, are getting contracts. That's a relatively new wrinkle. But Contract law is changing at the same time. So at the end of the 18th century, contracts were evaluated in a substantial way. In other words, the contract had to be plausibly beneficial to both parties for it to count as a contract, as a legal contract. Mm, mm, By the time you get to the end of the 19th century, all that counts is that the parties are sane. (laughs) with whatever the psychologist decides sane is. So basically the the substantive disadvantage that workers are at in signing contracts has been really effaced or evacuated Mm -hmm. from the the evaluation of contracts by the time you get the time that Mazak is writing. So, and then there's the whole, and Marcel Mose is, is concerned with this too, the whole difference between a contract society and a patriarchal society. That it's supposed to be things that people who are free enter into willingly. And yet what Mazak wants to show is that you can enter into a contract and not benefit from it. There's the the fact that labor contracts are becoming more prevalent, but also the fact that this is a society, liberal society, which is trying to define itself in terms of contract, including the social contract. Mm -hmm. I talk more about the social contract in nomad citizenship, but it's still part of the same overall picture at different sort of scales of granularity. Mm-hmm. So the contract, I mean, the fact that that Mazoc focuses so centrally on the contract in dramatic contrast with Dassad is a standout feature of the contrast for me. See, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot relative to this because of the development of the blockchain, right? Because the blockchain is doing something, I feel like it's going to be this more nefarious contract where like it's eliminating the human element entirely. And it's just this machinic bureaucracy of the blockchain will automatically determine what happens. And that will be sort of used as this way to, I guess, you could sort of be, you know, access to resources, access to space, access to whatever food, water, whatever is going to be sort of controlled by this independent machinic process that no one can sort of, no third party can really circumvent, which is a terrifying evolution of the same thing i think right it's a furtherance of that whole mechanism because you said like at one time yeah there was this i guess at least lip service towards both parties benefiting but now it becomes this sort of basically like a servitude it's it's just a piggyback for a second eugene you you mentioned this at the end of nomad citizenship where Deleuze and guattari perhaps in a way that is worded unfortunately, is this notion of machinic enslavement. Yes. This is, this is the negative side of, of these information networks right. and the, the sort of the, what is it, the crowd pooling of, of intelligence. This is perhaps one of the downsides. Anyway. Definitely. I, yeah. And in fact, machinic enslavement was the term that came to mind when Cooper was, mm-hmm. was mentioning the blockchain. I don't know enough about the way blockchain is being used now 
to enforce contracts to be able to comment. But right. I think everything will hinge on who writes the contracts and how well they're written. Because yeah. once they're in place, they're, it's machinic. I mean, it's right. yeah. pretty much out of people's hands. And see, this is the problem. The whole the whole ethos behind the blockchain is to provide a network of trust that isn't reliant on a state. So right. it's not reliant oh, yeah. on that. So Absolutely. Without that, you know, then you have no, there's no redress. You're just sort of trapped in this indentured servitude. There's no third party state to enter into this disequilibrium on each side of the contract. So it really tips the scales even further in the direction of, I guess, accumulation or those who have access to accumulation. Well, you mentioned trust metrics. Everything will hinge on that because they're mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to substitute trust metrics for the state, which is a, obviously an enforcement mechanism with very different parameters. Mm-hmm. And I think there are examples of it working. I don't know how far it will extend into blockchain contracts. I mean, that's yet to be seen. But in, in, in No Man's Citizenship, I, I lean rather heavily on the development of trust metrics mm-hmm. and some of the some of the websites that I w- was looking at had really elaborate algorithms for establishing trust mm. you know three or four levels deep right of and uh, whether that's paid off I don't know because well, I'm not in that sphere I'm even thinking something as simple as I've been having issues with my gmail password for the f- last few days and something is it's dumb and it's simple but trying to get signed into my television in my living room yes. i have to go through double authentication and it's just right. this i'm trapped in, i've been calling it machinic bureaucracy all week because yes. i've been yes. trapped in this like there's no escape and it <laughs> precisely goes into this whole thing about trust am i who i say i am that i'm yeah. trying to access this resource right so you can begin to see even as something where the stakes are relatively low right that there is a there's a big, big problem here. Yes, absolutely. That's, yeah. I think we've all been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, right, right, trying to get into our meeting today, right? Like that's another yep. example of yeah. <laughs> versus if we were in person, right? If we were in person, that would it would eliminate right. all the yes, need for this that's sort right. of virtual trust networks, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. I may take responsibility for the trouble getting on today, <laughs> ah, but no, I was no, just, no. but I was just fighting with my, my Washington post account, not being ah. able to get into that. So I right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I know we've had you for a little while. Uh, yeah. Can you, can, do, do you, uh, I, I did want to at least get to talk more about nomad citizenship, but, but specifically the, the subtitle. I mean, I, I think that, okay. I think that for our audience who is at least passingly familiar with Deleuze and Guattari with or without our nonstop talk about them, do you want to say maybe a little bit, you know, I know that the subtitle itself could be a whole podcast, but I was really struck and we may not have time enough for free market communism, but I was really struck by slow motion general strike and your, and your way of providing that, there's not just two alternatives, say revolution or reform. I was really struck by this kind of saying, you know, there are three options and they're not mutually exclusive. Do right. you kind of want to, do you want to say a little bit about that? Cause I think sure. that, that could be very uh, interesting for, for our listeners. It was inspired by Walter Benjamin's discussion of the general strike because he, he suggests that it's not violent and it's not coercive and that's for him a very important feature of the general strike. So that was one jumping off point. The other jumping off point was provisioning. We, so we talked about yes. mm-hmm. the motherland in terms of provisioning. That's one of the things that societies do in addition to protect, they provision their citizens. And uh, 
I was obviously looking for a way to restore some provisioning function without mm-hmm. involving the state. And so, so the, the notion of a slow motion general strike is in some ways paradoxical because general strikes are usually called to happen all at once. And then the general strike that Benjamin is talking about is that kind of general strike. But what's, what's key to the general strike for him is that one is not seeking for better wages or looking for better working conditions or bargaining power at the table. The general spoke, strike is supposed to end capitalism, it's supposed to put an end to it. Right. So the slow motion part of the general strike is, is about finding ways of provisioning oneself or oneselves as groups so as to be able to walk away from institutions that are capitalocentric. So community-supported agriculture is one of the things I mentioned. It's mm-hmm. a way of, of accessing food without going to your capitalist grocery store even, right. much less the state. So the idea is that, um, and this was also inspired by Gibson Graham's work on extra capitalist economies. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten the name of their most of their second book, but um, the end of capitalism as we know it was their first book, and their second book was more about and here are the things that are already in place mm-hmm. that we could jump to without having to worry about whether Kroger will be open or you know. Um, Vons or whatever, where you ever get your food. So um, Gibson Graham's work was very important for this idea that in order to support a general strike or any strike for that matter, you have to have alternative sources of provisioning. And yes. that is where I thought investments should go. It's not reform of existing institutions exactly, because it's actually looking for alternative institutions. But the point was that these alternative institutions already exist. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of investing in them in all senses of the word and helping them expand and in the same process, starving the capitalist institutions of, of our trust and our, uh, our dollars and our investments in, in all those senses. So that's what the slow motion general strike was trying to accomplish, is trying to sort of cobble together these different themes to propose a, a way of realizing nomad citizenship. In other words, there wouldn't be one, but a, a number, a network of institutions, of alternative institutions that would you would use for daycare or for, for provisioning or whatever the case may be. And, and in each one, you would be a citizen, not a monolithic citizen, but a, but a citizen, a partial citizen. And you know what this, I kept seeing a thread running through your works. This is just sort of to wrap up and, and to get some overarching thoughts, not to close down the discussion, but just to end with with something that I saw, this overarching theme, not just of schizoanalysis, which I feel like you've done a lot to keep that notion alive and to give it some some application and some breadth, because I do do feel like you know it's 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 kind of rare to see yet, but also this notion of that I saw clearly in introduction to schizoanalysis all the way through, even in your latest book, which hasn't been published on the perversions of markets, which is this notion of this shift from, you know, under the capital capitalist machine, capital becoming affiliative and giving birth to itself, right? To right. this shift away back towards privileging certain forms of alliances right. and, and what that entails. And you kind of keep that theme going throughout. And I found it very provocative. Is that kind of part of what's involved in, in this notion of 
whether Deleuze and Guadri called a new axiomatic or this kind of this new earth, all this different language, the, yeah. you know, this, this kind of these, this alternatives that you're talking about is, is this still involved with, you know, the shift away from capital as filiative back to, well, obviously it's away from capital at all. And it's a different, it's a different socius, you know, right. at least ideally in an ideal. Yes, hybrid. yes, yes. But alliance is coming back into into predominance. That's right. And another way of talking about it is, well, the term that Deleuze will use often is imminence. Mm-hmm. That instead of having mm-hmm. a transcendent imminence imposing its logic on a field or on a stratum, you have a mode of organization that is imminent to that stratum. And so self-organizing systems is a term I think I use in nomad yes. citizenship. Horizontal as opposed to vertical relations is another set of terms that... that um, that reflect the same difference. And yeah, this is a this is a very common theme, I think. I mean, Deleuze, he calls it, um, well, transcendental empiricism. Mm-hmm. But by transcendental, he, unfortunately, you have to understand the opposite of transcendent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the transcendental empiricism is about a network of forces that produce actuality on their own account. Right. The, the rhizome is another one of the terms, terms they mm-hmm. use to try to indicate versus a taproot, this, this horizontal patchwork or network of, of relations. And that is that you'll find that in the, in the perversions of the market book too. I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly where. Well, it's that there's the, in the fourth chapter where mm-hmm. I explain axiomatics. Yes. You have, you have an extended market, which is a rhizome. It's the real mm. network of shops, sources of raw materials, workplaces, and so forth, and the modes of transportation that connect them. That's the extended market, which is a rhizome. And then you have the imposition on that of finance capital, which is a vertical mm. or transcendent, semi-transcendent relation. This is where it gets tricky because it's not the kind of transcendence that characterizes despotism, mm-hmm. where you That's have right. all expenditure glorifying the, the god or the king or the emperor. Instead, you have this perverse... I have to underline this. <laughs> yeah. Quasi-transcendence where the expenditure is realizing further accumulation. It's all means. Right. It's no mm-hmm. ends. So mm-hmm. that thread that you've picked out is very much something that I think I got from Deleuze early on. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the one of the instances of this that struck me personally most dramatically was the difference between jazz improvisation yeah. and playing from a score. Because well, you can enjoy playing a Chopin nocturne, and it's scored for you by a transcendent instance, mm-hmm. and that's all well and good. But it's not the same thing as improvising with a group of other people on the spot mm-hmm. and coming up with 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 music. And so that's another for me. That was, and I actually asked Liz this, <laughs> and he said, "Well, I don't know anything about jazz." That's what he said <laughs> as an answer. But um, it's better than that, knowing too much, like Adorno. Right. Yes, you that's know too right. much about jazz, and then well, yeah. yeah, or mistake <laughs> pop music for jazz or something in the in Adorno's right. case. But um, but yeah, that's you're right to pick out that theme. I think that when I when people ask me what I what I'm interested most in Deleuze, I often start with the notion of imminence and and, yeah. uh, and yeah. patchworks or networks. Alliances is the term they use in um, in antithesis for that. Yeah, Coop, I wanted to give you the chance if you uh, if if you had one last thing to. Sure. So we can, we definitely don't want to monopolize your time and be be like uh, like a bad market. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying okay. this. Okay. I've, I've, I've retired, so <laughs> well, I don't get I don't get the chance to do this. All right. Oh, nice. All right. All right. <laughs> I have a good yeah. one, real quick, that I can, and then you can sort of 
formulate your own. But Eugene, I was curious. So in the perversion of the market text, your approach resonated with me. It reminded me a lot of Baudrillard's discussion of the procession of the simulacra, because he starts out with this notion of the Renaissance, right? And that's where he kind of starts to problematize like the image and show the Mm -hmm. procession. And so what I was thinking about was, okay, is this is he sort of picking up on this Kantian means like the contract for, I forget what you just said. It was like the, well, uh, it, it, the mechanism. Means, everything right. is all means, right? It's, it's the, the right, process right. kind of gets hijacked, so to speak. Right. Right. Or, so the end, and so it's almost like this, the simulation is just decoupling that it's just that sort of process continuing further and further and even virtualizing as we move into things like blockchain and the internet and so forth. But I was like, I guess that in disambiguation between outcome and process maybe being sort of a connective tissue in that critique that Baudrillard's offering. But again, very much reminded me because you even cite Machiavelli, which would be sort of that almost Renaissance era, roughly. Yeah, more or right. Less, right. Yeah. Yes, definitely. This decoupling of well, it gets reflected later in the in the in the evolution of contract law that I described earlier, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the decoupling of formal rationality from substantive rationality has its has its seat in Machiavelli. I don't think there's any mm-hmm. question about that. Now, how that plays out through the simulacrum, I'm not sure. Except that what I do insist on is the is the difference between wealth and surplus value. And that's mm. another decoupling, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. so the system is now churning out more and more surplus value, especially with things like derivatives and so on, where the, the total value of derivatives is now several times the output of the entire planet. Exactly. Without anyone having being able to actually determine what that amount is. I mean, talk about <laughs> a, a mutant flow. Yes, that's yes. a mutant flow of value, which has become almost completely detached from wealth. Mm-hmm. Except that certain people who are in the process of manipulating those mutant flows get massively wealthy. Right. And so there is that that personification of it. But that decoupling of wealth from value, I think, is a really important feature that that I, fi- I find um, Deleuze and Guattari's vocabulary particularly apt at capturing. Like I said, the connection in this, the way that he discusses signs being decoupled from signifiers, etc., being a similar, really, and kind yes. of the same sort of process mm-hmm. that's occurring, because those two processes are intertwined, right? Then yes, we wind up with this. Like you said, the derivative market is a great example. You know, just to concretize that for the audience, I'm thinking about the movie The Big Short, where yes, they go to talk to the bond rating agency, and they're like, "Hey, they have their research. They're like, okay, these underlying bonds that are making up these CDOs or whatever have are all defaulting. Why the hell is the value of the <laughs> of this derivative still not being impacted yeah. by its underlying material, the actual right. material reality? So right. I, that's kind of my if you can kind of see a little oh yeah definitely that's that's a, that's of. a great moment for the in that film for this for this for an insight into this process yeah and i guess uh, you just pointed out that yeah it's those people that have access to the levers of that manipulation right. can really just like the bond approval agencies right like yes that's they're right. implicit in the whole thing definitely yeah so it does does come down to people or at least job functions so it's not a complete decoupling but for the most part it's and for the and for the vast majority of people it's an absolute decoupling right and as i point out a couple of times in the book it's going to destroy the planet yeah. yes 
I don't know how to make more of a point of that, but that's, <laughs> yeah, that's you're uh, not the first one to make the point either, right? <laughs> so no, that's right. No, I, in fact, of... Naomi Klein's book, what is it, World on Fire or something, mm-hmm. has yeah. passages that I've that I'm putting in the footnotes because oh, nice. she's on this too. I mean, in very dramatic language. I wanted to ask you about: Is there a difference between, for example, the sort of perverse perversity of capitalism and what Deleuze and Guattari say. I think you even cite it in the introduction to schizoanalysis where it's the, it's a passage in chapter four where they say more, uh, more perversion, more artificiality and pushing deterritorialization in, right. until, until you form a new earth. Is there a difference between the sort of, is there a good type of, perversion that perhaps isn't necessarily always already co-opted by the production of surplus value or was that was that a tension that maybe i just miss misread no no i don't think that's something you misread the um the accelerationists have taken off from that passage in anti-oedipus in yes. ways that i i find uncongenial and when you get to thousand plateaus it's notorious for being far more cautious yes and um so what they say there, they do say with the um, with the quantum flows of desire underneath the market that uh, and yet and then and nonetheless sponsored or produced or generated as a byproduct by axiomatization and decoding, there is this this um, affinity that they have for that pole, the schizo, yes. right, is yeah. the hero, if you will. Yes. Um, but in their caution, they say you don't, you can't just in, in the second volume that you can't just stratify too fast. Yes, there's the cancerous black hole. You can wind up in a in a bad place. And the idea of a new axiomatic is is I think grounds for caution. In other words, it's a way it's a way of thinking about how to be more cautious about destratification and decoding. So the new axiomatic would not leave the quantum flows alone. It would monetize them. But in a way which would not serve this decoupling of wealth and value, mm. it wouldn't be oriented towards accumulating more surplus value. It would be oriented towards collective enjoyment, the yeah. kind of expenditure that the fireworks on Fourth of July is a kind of pale echo of. The way I characterize this in the most recent manuscript is you have perversion and you have perversity. Okay, I see, I see. Okay, and perversity, this is going back to Marcuse and to Norman O'Brown, the notion of polymorphous perversity, which I think is is a feature of the extended multiplicity of the market, what I call the division of labor and the division of leisure, the notion that we are becoming more and more specialized in Mm. every aspect of our lives. And this is a kind of perversity. It's not, you know, basic nourishment. It's being a foodie. That's a kind of perversity, right? Right, Um, right. So I distinguish between perversion, which is what capital does to the markets in a bad way, masochism and sadism, and perversity, which is which is neurodiversity, which is the other other term that I throw I in there to try to hook onto a movement which has become current in the last what I guess decade, you might say, mm-hmm. which I think is a way of maybe taking up the baton from the notion of polymorphous perversity, which still scares a lot of people. And I think Freud even was meaning to to scare some people and to, and yes. to call some people hypocrites when he first kind of yes. articulates that in the three essays. And so I guess then, and I'll let Coop take over after after this. 
I suppose then that makes a lot of sense that differentiating between perversion and perversity, would you then say that part of what is at least admirable in the primitive territory machine as they lay it out is that there is this kind of perversity insofar as there's like a collective investment of the organs that, you know, we haven't yet all become privatized and our little right. nuclear families right. and edifices. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this kind of part and parcel with some of your call of uh, maybe yes, looking, it is. Yeah, looking back at the primitive territory machine and seeing some of the things to take from it because you do. Absolutely right. The MOA yeah. box of debtor one, that is to say this is yes, a horizontal right. patchwork of debts, not mm-hmm. a monolithic one, which was introduced by despotism and then taken over by capital. So that's one feature. The feature that's missing, though, is the division of labor. Gotcha. Okay. The extensive division of labor and the division of leisure that I say accompanies it with uh, capitalist consumerism on its positive side, those are only possible when you have a global market or something approaching a global market. And the the primitive territorial machine is too small and too non-specialized so that that perversity really is a feature. I want to say this is a feature of markets. And I say that the fact that you're producing not to consume, but to sell your good is already a turning away from mm-hmm. a, subs- a subsistence economy. And that turning away is perversity, etymologically, and it produces taste, right? The human taste for things, which is something categorically different from nutrition, from nourishment, right. in, in right. that one example. And of course, it multiplies all over the place. You get all these specialized consumer niches and lifestyles and so on. And all that perversity is a feature of the market. And that's why I was so struck when I found that passage where they say, or a new axiomatic, and they mm-hmm. also say, this is more obvious, the world market is the only thing that's universal in capitalism. They say right. that in what, in what is philosophy. And they're clearly, well, not clearly, but they, they I think by <laughs> inference, you can say that they are, are market socialists, not anti-market socialists. And that's a huge mm-hmm. debate in socialist theory and communist right. theory that I, I didn't want to get into. And I, I don't, I mean, I've, I've made up my mind and they can make up their mind, but I think that the market is too important a feature of our society to go back on. And these comments like the market's the only thing that's universal in capitalism, and we might come up with a new axiomatic or ways of underlining the importance of markets to their thinking about decoding, about schizophrenia as freedom and so on. Well, at least popularly too, markets. I mean, I think people, a lot of people assume capitalism is markets and yes. everything else, but it's the market predates. It's an older Absolutely. machine that's been appropriated by capitalism, yes. which is yes. kind of an interesting, I don't know, this is a direction I've been moving into as towards as well as we've been reading Anti-Oedipus is kind of finding myself going from kind of this more anarchistic sort of approach to like embracing a little bit more of a Marxist, at least historical understanding of the way that society and capital evolve. Well, I think I have rewritten the preface to the Perversions <laughs> of the Market book since I sent that version to you two. And in that, I frame this book, the Perversions of the Market book, in relation to my Nomad Citizenship book. Yeah. Both of them are insisting on the importance of distinguishing free markets from capitalist markets. And the Nomad Citizenship book is the utopian side of that distinction, and the Perversions of the Market is the critical side of that distinction. Mm. But that's definitely what these two books do together as they try to drive a wedge between markets or free markets and capitalist markets. So that's definitely... I was thinking that it reminds me, you have that really, you have that nice diagram 
Graham, in your book on Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, the introduction to schizoanalysis, where you have the, you have potentially four machines. Right. You haven't maybe seen the fourth yet, but, you know, inherent in the fourth machine, which you call permanent revolution, you still have an economic side on, right. but you've now, we've now gotten rid of the, the power side, right? And this right. is kind of decoupling. I said we didn't have time, but I guess we do. This, <laughs> this kind of gets elaborating into your notion of free market communism, because right. it is absolutely this, right. It's taken the best from the different uh, sociuses. If I'm remembering correctly, if the primitive territorial machine didn't have, you know, economy in that market sense, but it had power right. or no, or had neither, it had exchange, right? It had exchange, but not. It was negative on both sides, right? It didn't have power. That's right. Have That's economy, right. But the despotic, you have power, but not the market, so to speak, at least in the sense that you're talking about free markets. Right. If capitalism has both, we haven't yet tried taking away the power vector. Right. That, that seems like something yeah. that you think through, you elaborate more upon. That That's thing. right. I hadn't thought of that, that chart, but you're exactly right to pick out that fourth permutation, which I call permanent revolution, which I then later call, I guess, the slow motion general strike. Yeah, that's definitely the kernel of that's another version of them. I mean, you can go directly from there to the only thing that's universal in capitalism is the market. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the same idea. We got to retain the economic and get rid of the power, which means working in co-ops. Yep. Which means, um, I mean, there 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 are different instances of it in different spheres, but that's the getting rid of power. Yeah. Well, first of all, you should maybe reuse that diagram because I, I think it's very uh, it's very suitable and it's and I yeah. assume it's yours. I don't know if you uh, yeah it is it's mine yeah well, I, so just a re um, reappropriate your own uh, <laughs> labor there. <laughs> I think it may have come up in a in a seminar with Fred Jameson. Uh -huh. um, so okay. he certain he's certainly the one who who turned me on to using that gray moss rectangle to map out right things. And I can't remember if I introduced it to the seminar or he introduced it to the seminar. But that's that's definitely one of the kernels, and uh, it, then it plays out in in these different sets of terminology. Yeah, it helps to kind of see. And I guess my only challenge to you would be would be coming up with a quippy name for the the fourth. Body without organs. What is the body yeah. without organs of permanent revolution? Is it yeah. is it co-ops? Is it the what's, uh, what's what's the word that um that Foster comes up? With? It's a related difference, right? There's, oh yes, yes, and, related and difference. Yeah. I wanted you to maybe you don't have to recap all of her work or whatever, but it did seem like she was a huge important figure for elaborating nomad citizenship. Do you want to just say a little bit about related difference? Since it's, it's it sounds like a Deleuze concept. Yes, right? you would think so. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons it struck me. I had been invited by the Copenhagen Business School, I think, to give a talk. And so I was reading in management theory and I came mm -hmm. across her work and I was just, I was really astonished. She has a, a version or a model of authority, which is not transcendent. It's yeah. not transcendent authority. It's not a power figure imposing authority. It's what I call in the nomad citizenship, like power with instead of power over. And that's authority that move, that emerges from within a mm -hmm. horizontally organized group. And I give the example of the the Orpheus Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, tell us about which, this because I was I, I'd never heard amazing. of it, and I, I thought it was yeah. I thought it was incredible. <laughs> Again, an institution that exists, right? That is already there, functioning. It's one of the most widely performed groups in the world. 
They get invited all over the place. They're not recording as much. But anyway, what they do is instead of having the conductor and the musical director and then all the musicians as peons, for each piece they decide to perform, they will select a different conductor and a different musical director from the orchestra because this flautist happens to know this piece by Bach particularly well or whatever the case may be. And so there is no permanent authority mm-hmm. figure. It's like pirates, right? Yeah. Pirates elected their captains. And if the captain wasn't performing right, that captain was gotten rid of. I'm exaggerating for effect. It was, <laughs> it was, it was trickier than that. But, but right. in, in, in contrast with the Royal Navy, the social relations of pirate ships were much more along the lines of nomad citizenship and this idea of related difference that you benefit from difference being put in relation, but not subsumed by an instance of power or authority. And related difference was her term for this. And she has, this is her vision of the way the workplace could be organized as in contrast with the power pyramid Mm -hmm. that most corporations are organized by. And so Mondragon cooperatives, there were, again, concrete instances of existing institutions that follow her model, even though the First World War intervened and pretty much blew her whole way of thinking out of the water. Right. What I liked about the Orpheus Orchestra, because you do mention it extends also to like the CFO and the CEO. Yes. It's it's a kind of rotating Mm -hmm. type of of deal. And as you said, it's kind of self-organizing. It reminded me of you know, your point about jazz improvisation, but it's now, it's now in, in the kind of self-organizing orchestra, which would seem to be, uh, which kind of scrambles the codes between the typical orchestra versus, versus jazz. And that's why I think I I found it. So he's frozen in Kantian time again. (laughs) uh, Well, as you said, this, this, you were frozen in Kantian time for a moment. Uh, time is at a joint. I, I <laughs> my, my main thing being that, that you could you could see within the organizational structure of a typically hierarchical type of type of ensemble, uh, you could see some of that freedom at play, even. And Definitely. that's why that's why I thought and, it was interesting. Yeah, and the only exception is they still play scored music, and that's okay. Right. I mean, that's the one transcendent instance that has survived this reorganization along more horizontal or power with lines, but. Power with is a term, I think, Starhawk, who is a new age feminist, I don't know quite what, um, elaborated on the difference between power with and power over. And it seemed mm. to match this notion of, of, of um, imminent authority as opposed to imposed authority, which right. I don't really consider authority at all. Did you have one more? I know you added a couple other questions, Scoop. Did you, uh, did you have one more? Or well, you... It's a bit unrelated. I don't know if Eugene will indulge us, but I was kind of curious because sure. I think our, he will. <laughs> our, our last foray into the what was it, two or three sections of chapter three of Antiedipus. One of the kind of big sticking points, at least for myself, and I know the guests we had on a little bit, was this notion of surplus, and I think in particular surplus flux. So I don't know if that opens if that can of worms is is too large. We could probably handle but this, if you, I'm yeah. pretty sure. If you have an idea or if you want to maybe elaborate a little bit on that, because I wasn't quite sure if that had any implications for a little bit about what you guys have been discussing relative to the quantum, sort of the, the under uh, the desire mm-hmm. flowing underneath, right, the finance right. on top. and, mm-hmm. and that. Well, quantum. let me make sure I'm, I'm understanding the question because they do talk about the difference between a surplus value of code and yes. a surplus value of flow. Is yes. that where your question lies or not? Yes, I think so. 
Both? I've, I've, <laughs> I, yeah, no, it's it, it's the difference between those those two. Moving from that type of uh, uh, th- those types of flows of code and overcode to to what the full body of capital entails, right? So, can you flesh out the question a bit? I think Cooper was interested in you know if. If codes and overcodes with the surplus value of code and the way that those work in the primitive territorial machine and in the despotic uh, machine work by, they still work within this way in which meaning and belief and customs, traditions, rituals, however you want to say it, are still sort of determining the relative, I don't want to say value, but the, yeah, the relative. Yeah, I think you say value. Yeah, yeah. the relative value of things in, in a sort of worldview in a, in, a, in a society. What is it about the surplus value of flow that Deleuze and Guattari are specifically trying to say with capital and the abstract, you know, the, the abstraction that that implies? Well, that's, I think that gets to the heart of what makes a society a market society. Okay. Because as you say, codes and overcodes, even when they support mercantile capitalism, mm-hmm. are based on meaning, custom, all the things you cited. So even mercantile capitalism operates on the basis of an evaluation here based on the customary, you know, thinking about cows or coats or whatever, and its relation to either a different place or a different time. So you have a market, but it's working in the interstices of a coded or overcoded society. When the market becomes the basis of society, then you have surplus value of flow. And what it means is that capital has become the socius, not the earth or the body of the despot. That means that everything is, first of all, quantitative and abstract. Let us say all, so the social fabric is knit by the cash nexus in terms of money, quantity instead of quality, and quality is derived from so it. That's, that's the, why the quilting point for the socius is cash. Am I, yes, am I incorrect? Yes. Okay. No, no, that's right. I think of quilting point in terms of the way people invest the socius, Mm, right? Okay. And they're very clear on this. I was just reading in my introduction to schizoanalysis some quotes from them about how money is what enables people to invest the entire social field, even if they're poor. Interesting. Even if they're even if they're broke, money still you could win the lottery by spending a dollar and then buy your yacht, right? Money for them (laughs) is the quilting point which enables people, even the most disadvantaged, unfortunately, mm-hmm. to uh, pursue their, what is it, the Spinoza quote, pursue their, their enslavement as if it was their salvation. Yes, there you go. Right? Masochism. We're all so, temporarily disadvantaged billionaires, right? Yes, you know, right. That, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So that definitely money is the quilting point. And uh, the, the other thing that's key about the sur- surplus value flow is that, and this they get directly from Marx, once capital has subsumed society. In other words, once society becomes a capitalist society, everything is capital. The worker is capital, variable capital. The food that he or she is eating is Mm -hmm. a commodity that is realizing profit on someone's investment. So capital circulates continually through this system. And the reason they want to insist, I think, on on, on a surplus value flow is that unlike most orthodox Marxist economics, it precludes the notion that there is value produced somewhere punctually that then right. ends up in the coffers of the capitalist. What right. they want to say is that it's, it's it's a differential. And that's, I mean, they use delta, right? It's a differential. Yeah. 
that arises from the flow, it's not anything that's created in any one place. And they're not the only ones who, who interpret Marxist economics that way, but it is a kind of, it is a, a kind of interpretation of Marx's analysis of capital. And that's, I think those are the things that the surplus value of flow concept gets them most clearly. The and, distinction and, between real capitalism and mercantile capitalism, mm-hmm. and the idea that capital now is a differential flow, and that's where surplus arises. What I appreciated, and I'll, I'll let Coop respond just real quickly, that what helped me to reflect, because I was also reflecting on that end of you know the, the capitalist representation and the capitalist machine when I was reading your introduction to schizoanalysis, your quotes from the Grundrisse, where Marx pretty much himself talks about this movement of circulation, Mm -hmm. and it's only, if anything ever can just be deadlocked, if you only look at a moment of it, then you're not quite seeing the full process, right? The the flow that that, that just, that's always, that capital is in the full movement and not any one moment when it's the commodity is just on the shelf or whatever. It's, It's always in this even in these like projections, right? These quarterly projections we can think of and, uh, and how that affects investments and, mm-hmm. and share prices and, and all of that is all interconnected. Yeah. Ooh, that's suspect too, to the polling kind of thing that Baudrillard really goes to where like the poll, them- oh. the poll itself becomes a sort of launching point for this sort of simulation almost right. sort of yeah. self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. to it, or whatever you want to, however you want to yeah. describe that. Yeah. Cooper, did we address your question about surplus value of flow? Yes. Um, Oh, yes. Okay. No, I, I think I would just point out maybe for the listeners too, this is kind of how banks sort of sit in this circuit where they sort of operate as, I don't know, what is it like the clover leaf for the highway example that, was that Dan Smith that? Well, that's, that uh, that's Michel Serre. They quote okay, Michel Serre. Right, right. Okay. That's what it uh, was, and, right. And that's an anti-Oedipus, but they're talking about, they're talking about networks and- um, I'm Well, how exact- capital can always kind of flow in these without sort of hitting- it can flow. Oh, it can. It, yeah, it's, it's. It can flow it's, through the same physical space, but without ever bumping into itself. I guess. Right, and I, I wonder if that that has to do with the, like the banks just, enable this differential relationship to actually function, or that's yes, the bank's right. function is to process that calculation or something. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of reaching it. Well, the, the banks initiate it by creating this mutant flow that then mm-hmm. gets actualized in act, in factories and so forth. So they're at a crucial position, but they can't exist independently of the entire set of circuits. Right, right. Um, so even though the production of the production and enjoyment of wealth is subordinated to the production and accumulation of surplus value, you can't have the latter without the former. I mean, right. there, there still has to be. And yeah, I do like this the emphasis that in coding and overcoding qualities are what are what are coded, right? It's, yep. it's there's these are qualitative flows, but it's with right. the capitalist body without organs that quantities, pure quantities through the abstraction, the general equivalent of right. money. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's it, the quantities are being are what are the are now the the abstract flows, and qualities are only kind of epiphenomenal mm-hmm. and and really lack much consistency beyond perhaps congealing into products to be privately consumed. Now we're back into yeah. the, the domestic masochism. Right, right. <laughs> I think Marx has a great quote for about this where he says that the uh, the commodity takes the buyer to market or something oh, yeah. like that. That's great. So it's completely flipped, right? It's now the quantities that are, that are driving the qualities. 
it's it's and, like that oh that picture that's like a, there's only one footprint in the sand the commodity carried me to the market right yeah, that's <laughs> well i was thinking uh yakov smirnov right in soviet russia commodity by you right something <laughs> like that you know just uh no this is all very this is all very good and very very helpful i suppose one thing one last thing i would say and this was something that we kind of talked about last week so it's just something i'm i'm trying to think about too in your model for say a nomad citizenship is part of the is part of the target still how do i put this nicely obviously the with permanent revolution with the slow motion general strike there would be this move away from the nuclear family and would that be just something that kind of happens as a consequence or or should that also be perhaps an axiom or however you want to yeah. say to be uh, tackled at the same time you know is cuz i i was trying to think about this with our last interlocutor and and how is it is it that transforming capitalist relations or pulling away from them as you were saying would that already kind of entail a disinvestment as well from the sort of privatized nuclear family because you you do treat it in all of your works kind of as this fiction it's hard to say it's chicken and the egg thing right it's kind of <laughs> no but I, I was pausing because it's not a fiction it's the way we live oh okay I, right what Deleuze and Guattari identify is the mistake of psychoanalysis reinforcing it when in okay. fact society is moving away from it but it hasn't gotten away from it I think that um you know the um it's a fiction with real effects, I guess is kind of what I'm yes. saying. We, we do yes. invest in it. Yes. And the other thing they point out is that it's it serves as a perfect relay for capitalists. The nuclear family serves as a perfect relay for capitalist social relations. So capitalism isn't inclined to get away from the nuclear family, although right. it's definitely subverting it with all the predatory marketing that comes from a mass-mediated society. That aside, the idea is that the move to multiple citizenship. Yes which means citizenship in institutions, not just in states, is supposed to, in some ways, soften the boundaries between families and the social fabric. I like that. It's not something that I actually addressed head on because it's hard It's hard to figure out. It's a whole other book. It's a whole, it's other, a whole book. other book, but it's <laughs> yeah. also just something hard to figure out. I mean, capitalism has reduced us to the bare minimum of reproduction, right? Yeah couple and a child and uh it's one of these feedback loops or resonance chambers where the psychological pattern set up in a nuclear family just prepare people to be capitalist subjects and so it's hard to figure out how to make inroads into that so it's, a, so it's something i didn't address so how did your previous interlocutor address that if they did obviously I think that the the consensus is obviously that the nuclear family is is kind of artificially reinforced in a certain way. Yeah. That new modes of experimentation are inevitable and and desirable. It's just uh, it's the question of how that that will take shape. And yes. uh, and this is kind of why I like that you always cite the you know from Anti Oedipus the notion of what was it a uh, 
Mr. Worker, Mother yes. Mother Earth. Is it was a Mother Earth, Mr. Worker, and and the little their child. The no, little no, worker. no. It's it's Father Capital, Mother Earth, and their child, the Worker. Okay, got, got <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mixed that up. Yes, Father yeah. Capital. Yes, there you go. That's the affiliative capital. I shouldn't. Have that's that. right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, part of that is a quote directly from Marx, the father and the mother, and they add that's, the child okay. is the worker. That's right. That's it, what... To get at the at the psycho at, at the edifice complex. Yeah. But you know, there are two ways. To th- there are at least two ways to think about this. One is that the nuclear family is already being chipped away at, among other things, by multi generational residences now, mm-hmm. where children can't find jobs and support themselves. Right. And grandparents need either provide support or need support themselves. So that's that's sort of on the desperation end of things. But on the positive end of things, and this is more along the lines of what I was thinking in nomad nomad citizenship, is that if you're going to go, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but there are babysitting co-ops. Yes, you did. I yes. did. Okay, so we belong to one, and you don't really have money. You just trade hours, and it works fine. And so that's a fine a form of cooperative reproduction. Yeah. Uh, that if it were if it were taken just a few degrees farther, would begin to seriously chip away at the at the self-containment of the nuclear family. There are um, movements in Europe now about building residents that hold five families instead of one. Yeah. There's hints here and there about how it might look, but um, it's a tough nut to crack, and I didn't go very far in trying to address that. That's an idea for for your next work, and, and <laughs> but but you already but but you had already kind of you know if if you think of the perversions of the market as a, as a sequel to nomad citizenship, I think mm-hmm. that 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 it, that you you would have retread the same ground in a certain way. It is a theme that you you were consistent upon even as early as uh, as the introduction to schizoanalysis is that you know one of their targets is this artificial shoring up of the nuclear family yeah. and how that already plays in to having this anchor for the reproduction of, you know, capitalist relations. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I don't think I pointed out or maybe not strenuously enough is that Freud himself is at his worst when he's talking about reproduction mm. because, <laughs> because he presumes that the entire organism is, must be, should be, focused on reproducing the species. Yeah. And yeah. that really puts a noxious spin on perversity because perversity is supposed to, the the positive side of perversity is that it's delinked from the necessity of the organism or the species surviving. Right. Uh, and the, the, the body without organs is uh, is a, a very poetic way of trying to capture some of that. Yeah. of that uh, of that move away from always propping pleasure on need. Yes. Which is the key thing in Freud and in Lacan that they, well, maybe less in Lacan, but still that they object to in Freud, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's why you kind of mentioned briefly, that's, that's one of the the benefits to, uh, to someone like Laplanche who goes back to these terms that, that are not as, they're almost semi-concepts in Freud. They're they're there, but they they're doing a lot of work. But he's not thematizing them, which is like the notion of propping, which is like the notion of um, noctreglikite. The after after the event is right. you know one mm-hmm. way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. And and coming back and and thematizing them a little bit more in order to to kind of well, I like Laplanche because of his way of generalizing seduction and and showing that to be part of 
you know, psychogenesis, but I know we're getting far afield, just alternatives to Freud and especially the, uh, what, what, what I think that one of the big takeaways that I, I, I guess I take it from Deleuze and Guattari, but I think that you made very clear to me is the fact that, as you said, always historicize is the historicizing of the unconscious of social relations, you know, that really puts pressure on some of these, especially these later Freud concepts, like like the Oedipus complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if you historicize non-linearly, which is what they do in Thousand Plateaus. Yes. It's tricky, but uh, yeah. Any parting thoughts, uh, Cooper? Or we can we can wind down. I mean, I I feel like we've got a yeah an excellent. We we've had an excellent discussion, and uh, you know, absolutely. I'm I think I'm sort of expended all the. I've expended as much as I can okay. today, but I mean, there's so much that, you know, we could talk to Eugene about. So um, I just want to say, I, I really enjoyed reading. I didn't get to read as much as Taylor, but I did read the intro to schizoanalysis and the uh, S&M work as well. <laughs> S&M work? Yeah, sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> I've had to steer clear of that. And people say, oh, right. you're researching S&M, huh? Oh, How's gosh. it going? Yeah. Perversion of the market. I can, uh, I'll, yeah. perversion yeah. of the market. Uh, <laughs> yes, right. But just immensely helpful in my understanding of anti-Oedipus and just has had me, I don't know, intellectually excited and stimulated all week. And just thinking Good. about the impact, I think in particularly like, the way that you were discussing the Kantian, I guess, ethics as it pertains to both capitalism and the family. I mean, that was just, that just really snapped for me. And, and then kind of, you kind of touch on that a bit as well in the perversion in the marketplace mm -hmm. as well. I, re yeah. I recognize some resonances. Yes, that's right. Um, something about Kantian schema come up, comes up. Yeah. Nietzsche was such a, uh, had I mean Nietzsche and Deleuze both had such a love-hate relationship with Kant. It's really quite <laughs> remarkable to see how they negotiate that. And it sounds like that is <laughs> that you need to get that. Uh, you, have, you have another. You have another call. You have another podcast to go on. Okay. Um, Eugene, <laughs> well, this has been great fun, guys. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. I've had a great time, and if you want, we can do it again. Oh, we'd love, love to we have love that. that. We'd love. We'd love absolutely. to have you back later in the year, and hopefully by that time you'll be working on a new book that we can talk about. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Eugene. Thanks, we okay. appreciate you. Okay. Bye, guys. Cheers. Bye. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Once again, thanks to Eugene Holland for being such an amazing guest. We'll see you all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.